Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please signal by pressing star zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Cody, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, highlights from the 2022 American Society of Clinical Oncology or ASCO annual meeting. And the title is Advancing Equitable Cancer Care Through Innovation. And this is part two of highlights from the 2022 ASCO annual meeting. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Mirati Therapeutics, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. And we have wonderful speakers on today's program, and I'm going to begin by introducing our first speaker. And, our, and I just also want to say that we have many of you on the call today. We have over 207 people on the call today. You come from all the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, the Philippines, the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call as well, and we're delighted to have all of you with us today. Um, and now I would like to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris, and Dr. Chris is the William and Joy Rain Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris will be addressing the purpose of ASCO, Advancing Equitable Care Through Innovation, and updates on the treatment of lung cancer presented at ASCO. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak to uh, the group today uh, about the uh, presentations uh, that uh, were uh, made at the uh, 2022 meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and that is ASCO. Uh, this is an uh, international uh, group, uh, despite the uh, word American in the title. Uh, and every year, approximately 40,000 uh, cancer specialists from around the world come together uh, in Chicago uh, to share over 1,000 presentations of new information with all types of cancer and all uh, aspects of, of the problem of cancer, from, from delivery of therapy to the um, latest treatment innovations in, in every kind of cancer uh, that, that we deal with. Um, this year's, um, uh, and this year there were over 25,000 people on site uh, in Chicago and another more than 10,000 uh, uh, being playing part, uh, being part of it virtually. Uh, this year's theme was advancing equitable cancer care through innovation. Uh, and uh, we're not going to dwell today on all the difficulties in uh, delivering state-of-the-art cancer care uh, to everywhere uh, on the, in the world. But what uh, Dr. Vokes, the uh, president of ASCO during the last year, focused on was to try to use uh, innovation as a way of uh, making uh, the newest uh, advances in cancer care available uh, to as many uh, people as possible. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll give some examples of how um, using uh, a more um, 
more modern uh, uh, aspects and uh, advanced technology, uh, things can actually be made uh, simpler, easier, uh, cheaper, and, and more widely available. I think everyone is committed to making sure that uh, advances in cancer care uh, can be made uh, available to everybody uh, on Earth, and it's a work in progress. In the field of lung cancer, uh, there were a number of uh, important issues discussed, and I think there is some information that I think was very important uh, for uh, care and also some directions for uh, research. Um, the, the first uh, uh, thing I would like to, to talk about is uh, a uh, issue that has been uh, front and center for uh, medical oncologists uh, in the field, and that is for those patients whose cancers are tested for the PDL1 protein, and where the uh, presence of that PDL1 protein is high, greater than 50%, we know that those cancers are particularly susceptible to the immune checkpoint inhibitors, drugs like nivolumab, ipilimumab, a correction, nivolumab, ipilimumab, pembrolizumab, atezolizumab. Those drugs are much more effective in people that have high expression of PDL1. And there's been a whole body of research about whether or not chemotherapy should be used in addition to the checkpoint inhibitor. Um, and uh, does that uh, provide uh, added uh, benefit? Uh, and there were a number of presentations at the meeting this year, particularly one from the Food and Drug Administration, where they used all the information that was submitted to them to support the approval of the checkpoint inhibitors. And what they included, what they concluded rather, uh, particularly for the uh, important endpoints of the uh, survival without growth of the cancer and overall survival, that chemo did not substantially add to the checkpoint inhibitors benef benefits for those people that had high expression of PDL1. So I think for many patients, um, the uh, PDL1 targeted agent, the pembrolizumab, nivolumab, atezolizumab alone is as effective as combining it with chemotherapy. Now, there are some situations where uh, chemotherapy uh, can be beneficial when added to the checkpoint inhibitor, uh, and specifically those are uh, situations where patients have many cancer-related symptoms. Um, there are more shrinkages that happen when you give chemotherapy with the checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, and for people that need that tumor shrinkage for the relief of pain or relief of obstruction of a, uh, airway, uh, giving the chemo with the checkpoint inhibitor, even with the high pd one is uh, important. The other um, place where it may be particularly important are for patients that had spread a cancer to the brain, that giving chemotherapy and the checkpoint inhibitor together can be more effective for shrinking and controlling uh, the metastatic deposits in the brain. So while the majority of patients get as uh, good a result with just the checkpoint inhibitor, some still need chemotherapy. There was another uh, abstract that I think uh, uh, impacts on uh, care, uh, and that was giving uh, chemotherapy or the combination of two checkpoint inhibitors, ipilimumab and nivolumab, to two groups of patients, those greater than age 70 and a second group of patients who are uh, somewhat debilitated by their cancer that spend uh, a good you know, part of their day in bed and can't perform all their normal activities. 
Uh, what they found was that the combination of the checkpoint inhibitors, the ipilimumab and nivolumab, for people greater than age 70 was better than chemotherapy. They could give the drug safely to uh, older adults, and the overall result was somewhat better. What they also found, and confirming something we know already, that for patients that were already ill from their cancer, whether they received the ipilimumab plus the uh, nivolumab or the uh, chemotherapy alone, they had very poor results. And doctors and patients and families need to think very, very hard on uh, the use of uh, both chemotherapy and checkpoint inhibitors in patients that are uh, debilitated. I know these are the people more than any that need therapy. They, they want and need therapy to try to fight the cancer and improve their overall outcome, but they appear to be the ones less likely to benefit from the chemotherapy and also suffer the side effects. So that was sort of a uh, sobering uh, observation there. Uh, good news that age per se does not mean that these uh, treatments cannot be effective, but for people that are already debilitated by the cancer, what they call low performance status is the term that people use, PS2, PS3 are words you may hear. Um, those patients, you need to be very, very careful in giving any therapy. We're looking for ways to improve on the results with the checkpoint inhibitors, and there were a bunch of abstracts presented there, giving drugs that uh, target a, a protein called uh, vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF. Uh, and when you give these drugs with uh, checkpoint inhibitors, uh, with uh, targeted therapies, there appear to be better outcomes. So giving bevacizumab, ramucirumab, and cabozantinib with checkpoint inhibitors or electinib all led to better results. And I think that's another option uh, that can be on the table uh, for patients uh, with um, uh, requiring a, 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 a new therapy. One other um, area that is uh, growing uh, and uh, very impactful is something called the antibody drug conjugate. Uh, it's been a dream to send chemotherapy directly to the cancer cell and avoid the normal tissues of the body. So what scientists have done is they've created antibodies, just like an antibody that would fight infection, that would find its way to the uh, influenza virus or the COVID virus. They take that antibody and attach to it chemotherapy. So as the antibody goes directly to the cancer cell, it brings chemotherapy with it and directly to the cancer cell. These drugs are by and large very tolerate, well tolerated, uh, and uh, they appear to be effective. And there were a number of them uh, presented uh, at the ASCO meeting this year. Um, there is a drug called telisotuzumab vedotin for a MET-activated uh, lung cancers. There is a, a second one, uh, petritumab derixtecan for patients with EGFR, and another one, TDXD, for patients with the HER2 mutation, uh, to some uh, mitimab, raftancine for another uh, protein target, CCAM5. All of these uh, antibody drug conjugates were discussed. They all showed benefit and all showed, by and large, better tolerability from standard intravenous chemotherapy alone. So I think this is a, a very burgeoning area of um, care and uh, a whole new approach to cancer. Uh, and there was a huge amount of uh, discussion about the uh, drug uh, 
uh, trastuzumab derixtecan in breast cancer, uh, where it was effective even with patients that had uh, tumors had low expression of the HER2 uh, protein. Um, this drug, by the way, also effective in lung cancer and, and approved just last week by the FDA for patients with HER2 mutated uh, lung cancer. Uh, again, another antibody drug conjugate. Uh, new drugs were also uh, discussed. Uh, a uh, drug, amivantinab, currently approved for EGFR exon 20, uh, also effective uh, for uh, EGFR and uh, MET mutations. Uh, a drug called CLIN081, uh, targeting exon 20 appears to be effective and uh, apparently better tolerated than other drugs such as amivantinib or mobocertinib. And the drug adagrasib. Adagrasib is another uh, KRESG12C inhibitor, uh, a degree of activity uh, comparable to other drugs in the field, uh, and a drug again, you know, marching uh, toward um, uh, FDA approval. Now, there are other uh, efforts that were discussed at the meeting, um, and that was combining uh, the uh, newer uh, checkpoint inhibitors with uh, uh, the standard ones in chemotherapy. Uh, unfortunately, those were not uh, beneficial. Uh, TIGIT was the one that was looked at. Uh, that that um, uh, whole area of research continues but so far has not uh, led to a dramatic discovery. One of the uh, most important uh, developments in the field of uh, lung cancer is the use of so-called neoadjuvant, neoadjuvant therapy, chemotherapy, targeted therapy, and checkpoint inhibitors. There, are, there were many presentations and recent uh, uh, approvals of uh, nivolumab with chemotherapy before surgery. And all of these uh, trials have shown uh, benefits to patients, longer times disease-free after receiving uh, the drugs and after surgery, uh, and also um, uh, not just longer times, but uh, in, an enhanced chance of cure. Many discussions uh, at the ASCO meeting on that and much data presented. Uh, the next step is moving these drugs to patients that, that whose tumors have targets, things like EGFR or ALK. Uh, there was a data on a trial that, uh, that I have been involved with, uh, led by Boris Sepasi from MD Anderson, where patients at the very time of diagnosis will have their tumor tested. If they have uh, uh, a driver like EGFR or ALK or MET or RET, they would get a targeted therapy today on a clinical trial. Those that don't would be considered candidates for uh, immunotherapy. Now, one last uh, area that was discussed, and this is an example of how innovation can help, was the use of uh, artificial uh, intelligence to uh, better uh, evaluate uh, uh, tumor tissues to help plan therapy. What can be done is uh, the pathologist looking at the tumor tissue under the microscope can take a picture of it and using uh, computer-generated uh, algorithms, the computer can analyze that picture uh, more consistently and more precisely than pathologists. So potentially, any uh, pathology department on earth could take a picture of a slide, send it to a central uh, place and have it looked at by the most sophisticated uh, methods 
to analyze those tissues. Um, this is a great advance. Uh, all you need is a uh, an iPhone and a camera to do that, uh, and I see that as something becoming more and more important. And the nice thing about that is that it does fit with the uh, theme of the ASCO meeting here, that something that is innovative uh, can lead to uh, a, uh, a state-of-the-art uh, care no matter where um, it, you're going to find it. Uh, one last thing worth mentioning, and I'm going to end on this, is the expansion of screening. Screening saves lives. They estimate that from between four and 10,000 lives could be saved each year from lung cancer with more effective adopting of cancer screening. And there was a very innovative program from uh, the uh, Levine Cancer Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, going out into the communities that surrounded Charlotte, meeting people where they were and getting them to do lung cancer screening and uh, trying to overcome uh, obstacles both on a personal and a logistical level by making care available at little or no cost and working with healthcare authorities to make people uh, get the screening that they need to to. Um, improve their health and, and save the lives from lung cancer. So in some an exciting uh, time for at ASCO this year, I encourage you with lung cancers in, in yourself or your family to meet with your doctors, see if any of these new innovations um, will apply to you. Many of them are not things you need to wait for. They're drugs that are available now and could be given to you. Uh, and again, I think the critical thing is meet with your personal team, meet with your, your healthcare team, and see if any of these innovations can work for you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was really outstanding, a stellar presentation, and so much wonderful information from ASCO for people who are living with lung cancer. Um, and also in terms of just the theme of the conference at um, advancing um, equitable cancer care through innovation. And I think that's going to be a theme you're going to hear throughout this uh, conference today. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Al Benson III. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Laurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson will be addressing updates on the treatment of colorectal cancer presented at ASCO. And it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to join everyone today. Dr. Chris just talked a great deal about immunotherapy with checkpoint inhibitors uh, in lung cancer. And before I talk a little bit about some of the abstracts, I should mention in colorectal cancer, the most frequent current use of immunotherapy is for patients with metastatic disease who have alterations in the DNA mismatch repair pathway. Pathologists now routinely report these alterations when evaluating a colorectal cancer tumor, and all colorectal cancer patients should know their mismatch repair or MSI status. Briefly, microsatellites are short repeating DNA sequences across the human genome. These sequences are very prone to errors, and there are genes that can correct these errors. If a tumor has sufficient mismatch repair proteins or microcytolite instability, errors are not corrected and tumors uh, can develop. Uh, mismatch repair genes can be altered through germline or inherited mutations 
or by non-inherited loss of expression. About 15% of colorectal cancer tumors uh, have deficient mismatch repair, and most of these are sporadic or non-inherited. Most patients with colon cancer have earlier stage disease with mismatch repair and do very well after surgery, but about 5% have advanced or metastatic disease. And the good news is that for these individuals with metastatic disease, immunotherapeutic agents can produce significant benefit. What we don't know is if there is benefit for people with earlier stage disease. So the, the first abstract I want to mention attracted a great deal of attention as a late-breaking report and was uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this was the first report of an initial group of patients on a phase two study uh, uh, of rectal cancer, uh, all of whom must have deficient mismatch repair Tumors. And in rectal cancer, deficient mismatch repair represents about 5 to 10% of all these individuals. The current standard for most people with stage 2 and 3 rectal cancer patients is to give preoperative or what's known as neoadjuvant combination therapy with chemotherapy and radiation followed by surgery. Now, with this total neoadjuvant approach, as it's called, some patients can actually avoid surgery since with the radiation and chemotherapy, they achieve a complete response. In this ASCO presentation of this phase two study, uh, for patients with stage two or three deficient mismatch repair rectal tumors, um, the plan was to enroll a total of 30 patients who receive uh, immunotherapy uh, with the drug uh, Dostarlamab, which is given intravenously every three weeks for six months. Now, so far, there were 18 out of the plan, 30 patients enrolled, and 14 of the patients actually have been under treatment for six months or longer, and all of these achieved a complete response, therefore, uh, not moving on to surgery or chemotherapy or radiation. This was a pretty stunning result, but we need longer follow-up. We need more uh, patients. But for this subgroup of rectal cancer patients, this approach with immunotherapy may actually transform the way we treat patients and uh, perhaps avoiding surgery. Now, another abstract came from Chinese investigators. Now, I, I talked about this neoadjuvant approach for rectal cancer. However, for stage two and three colon cancer patients, the typical approach is to uh, go to surgery and then after surgery to receive three to six months of adjuvant chemotherapy. There is interest whether a preoperative approach may be useful for colon cancer patients as it is for rectal cancer. So this phase three trial was a randomized trial 
where uh, uh, one group of patients received neoadjuvant chemotherapy with standard regimens, oxaliplatin and 5-FU, known as Fulfox, or capecitabine and oxaliplatin, known as Capox, followed by surgery, and then they were to receive an additional three months of chemotherapy. The second group was uh, utilizing the standard approach of surgery followed by adjuvant chemotherapy that was chosen by the physician. There were 744 patients randomized between these two groups. And the results thus far showed that actually in the neoadjuvant group, uh, fewer patients actually received the adjuvant treatment as designed. There was really no statistical difference in the disease-free survival at three years. But the neoadjuvant treatment did produce a complete response in 7% of the patients, and 20% of the patients had a decrease in their tumor size. There were no unexpected complications. And also there was a trend that neoadjuvant therapy may be a better approach, especially for women. So these are intriguing data. They have the potential to change uh, the way we treat patients, but we, we need more study. But uh, this was uh, a good first step. Now, um, next, the, the, there have been advances in colorectal cancer linked to the study of biology through molecular profiling of tumors and next generation sequencing. A very important newer area of technology advancement is the ability to locate circulating tumor DNA in a patient's blood, looking for potential treatment targets, but also evaluating patients to see who is most likely uh, to recur from their tumors after surgery. And if in those individuals who have circulating tumor DNA, is further treatment uh, effective? Uh, there are a number of clinical trials uh, ongoing, and this is a very important area of research. And at ASCO this year, um, there was a, 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 an abstract looking at patients with stage two colon cancer um, to see if um, determination of circulating tumor DNA is uh, present after surgery and, and what might be an optimal approach. So most patients um, do uh, with stage two colon cancer do very well after their surgery and do not require post-operative chemotherapy. But there are patients who recur and the challenge is how to identify uh, these individuals. We really need better definitions of factors of risk to predict recurrence. Currently, we generally use factors that are pathologic. Uh, for example, if there's lymphovascular invasion in the tumor, uh, but um, these ha have not been as accurate as we would like to have. So in this abstract, it, the intent was to build upon data which showed that those who had positive circulating tumor DNA in their blood carry a high risk uh, 
of recurrence. Although for those patients, we really do not yet know if giving post-doc chemotherapy will decrease the recurrence risk. So uh, in this trial that was presented, it was randomized between those where adjuvant therapy was given by using our conventional clinical pathologic criteria versus in the second group, those who had positive circulating tumor DNA received post-operative chemotherapy, but if they were negative for circulating tumor DNA, they were observed. In this study, there were 441 patients and of those in the standard management group, uh, 28%, and that was represented 41 out of 147 patients, received chemotherapy. And in the uh, circulating tumor DNA-guided group, 15%, or 45 out of 294 patients, received chemotherapy. The trial showed that using circulating tumor DNA significantly reduced the proportion of patients receiving chemotherapy and did not compromise <coughs> the rate of recurrence-free survival. Those with circulating tumor DNA did appear to benefit from adjuvant treatment, and those who were negative for circulating tumor DNA did very well. Uh, as I mentioned, there are ongoing trials but this adds to the body of evidence, and I think most of us fully expect that the use of circulating tumor DNA will become a standard of care. Just uh, to uh, finish with one other abstract, there is controversy as to which biological therapeutic approaches would be most optimal when either an anti-VEGF agent uh, typically used as the drug bevacizumab or an anti-EGFR agent with either cetuximab or kemtuvimab is added to chemotherapy as a first approach for patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. We know about 40% of patients have what are determined as RAS, wild-type tumors, and that most of these types of tumors are found in the left side of the colon, and these are the patients most likely to benefit from anti-EGFR treatment with either cetuximab or panituvimab. At ASCO, there was a phase three trial of 823 patients from Japan, which was the first prospective study to test panituvimab versus bevacizumab both given with standard chemotherapy as initial treatment for metastatic colorectal cancer patients with RAS wild type and left-sided tumors. <coughs> this study did show a superior overall survivorship of, for those who received tamatubamab. However, progression-free survival was comparable. The response rate was better and uh, a greater number of people were able to undergo successful surgery for their metastatic disease if they received the panituvimab rather than bevacizumab with Folfox. 
there are additional uh, biomarker studies underway with this trial. And so uh, this is providing further evidence uh, helping to define uh, 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 perhaps best approach uh, for people with uh, metastatic disease in certain subgroups. And, and with that, I'll conclude, and I thank you very much for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really outstanding, a stellar presentation, uh, really wonderful updates um, on colorectal cancer presented at ASCO, and also um, really with most cutting-edge um, information that our audience could expect to get. So thank you so much and uh, very much appreciated. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Anna Vajayzi. And Dr. Vajayzi is um, pancreas cancer medical oncologist, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Vajayzi will be addressing updates on the treatment of pancreas cancer presented at ASCO. It's really my great pleasure to show this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Vajayzi. Wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity to share updates on the treatment of pancreas cancer from this year's annual meeting. Um, there were many exciting abstracts focusing on pancreas cancer, and I'll highlight a few themes that came through. One theme was broadening the use of our sort of existing treatments and technology for all patients with pancreas cancer. And one of those has to do with um, the use of PARP inhibitors in the treatment of pancreas cancer. So one of the most exciting advances in pancreas cancer within the last five years or so relates to the drug Olaparib, which is a pill and it's a type of PARP inhibitor. At an ASCO meeting a few years ago, data was presented that led to the FDA approval of this PARP inhibitor, Olaparib, as a maintenance treatment for people who had pancreas cancer, whose cancer was responding to a particular kind of chemotherapy drug, a drug we call platinum drugs, and also for patients who had, who, whose cancer was responding to a platinum and who also had an inherited genetic change in one of these three genes, BRCA1, BRCA2, or PALB2. These are genes that can put people at risk for pancreas cancer, and for various reasons, we think that they might respond better to these platinum kinds of drugs. For these patients, then, the use of Olaparib represented a really wonderful opportunity to maintain treatment of their cancer, but with a pill that's generally much better tolerated than just continuing chemotherapy indefinitely, which is what we usually do. So there have been many questions in the field and many people wondering, is there a way for us to use this drug Olaparib and drugs like it, perhaps in other scenarios, not just in people who fit this very particular category of having this particular kind of genetic change. And so in this, so there was a study presented by Dr. Reisbinder and colleagues from the University of Pennsylvania where they were looking to see if this kind of drug with immunotherapy whose cancer was responding, to see if this kind of drug with immunotherapy could help people whose pancreas cancer was responding to a platinum drug. So not just the people who had those inherited genetic changes, but really just anyone whose cancer was already responding to this platinum drug. And what they found was that people who were getting the PARP inhibitor plus this particular kind of immunotherapy, they found benefit with stability in their cancer, raising the possibility that hopefully this drug could help not just people with inherited genetic changes and a particular kind of pancreas cancer, but perhaps more people with pancreas cancer whose cancer was responding to a platinum drug. 
So that I think certainly gives us optimism and hope that there might be opportunities for other kinds of treatments, hopefully again with fewer side effects and better tolerated that can keep the, the pancreas cancer under good control. And there are many studies ongoing to explore this sort of this, this question more fully, not only in people with platinum-sensitive pancreas cancer, but also in people who have other inherited risks for cancer in addition to BRCA1 and BRCA2 and PALP2, and also for people who have other particular kinds of genetic changes in their pancreas cancer itself. And although this wasn't necessarily a focus in the meeting, but I would take this point sort of this time to highlight an important point that highlights the importance of genetic testing for all of our patients who have pancreas cancer. Testing them not only for inherited risk for cancer, but also testing on the tumor tissue itself. And these findings can sometimes open up opportunities like for some, uh, for patients looking into studies related to the PARP inhibitor but also can provide really important opportunities for prevention and screening for their family members. Um, within this same theme, there were several abstracts evaluating the way in which we use treatments of chemotherapy and surgery for patients with resectable pancreas cancer. And this builds on some of the abstracts that both Dr. Benson and Dr. Chris presented about the role of what we call neoadjuvant therapy, or therapy given before a surgery for patients with cancer that probably we're still hopeful could be resected with an operation. So for people with pancreas cancer, Generally, and if it's limited just to the pancreas and we're able to do a surgery, usually we do surgery followed by chemotherapy, and that's based on some results from, again, from ASCO a few years ago, where it was found that six months of fulferinox chemotherapy was shown to be beneficial for people after who, who have had a surgery, so to do this chemo after surgery. And the goal of that chemotherapy after surgery is to hopefully eradicate or kill off any remaining microscopic cancer cells before they have a chance to spread anywhere else. Um, and, but I think many people have wondered, again, as Dr. Benson and Dr. Chris had mentioned, if, if there's a role for maybe starting with chemotherapy first so that we can start those kinds of treatments as soon as we know there's cancer there, and then consider an operation in the future, assuming that the, the surgery still makes good sense, and hopefully this could, again, allow us to improve outcomes for patients with pancreas cancer. So there were two studies evaluating this role of what we called neoadjuvant therapy or therapy before a surgery. Um, one from a group in Germany and another from a group in France, and they evaluated two different chemotherapy combinations and truthfully different chemotherapy combinations than what we generally use here in the U.S. But there was evidence to suggest that doing chemotherapy first may help improve our outcomes for people with pancreas cancer amenable to a surgery. And likewise, there's a study going on here in the United States enrolling patients all across the country evaluating the role of fulfurinox chemotherapy either when given all after a surgery or when given either before or after. So hopefully that will be data that we look forward to seeing um, as we try to give our best advice to people with pancreas cancer that's amenable to an operation. There was another very um, interesting abstract presented during one of the oral sessions evaluating the role of physical therapy for people with pancreas cancer while they're getting chemotherapy. Um, and certainly I think this is an area with a lot of interest both for patients and their caregivers as well as for their providers and the doctors and nurses who are helping care for them. And so in this study they were evaluating 
the benefit um, of doing a very of a prescribed physical activity program along with chemotherapy versus just doing our usual chemotherapy and kinds of supportive treatments that we do. And what they found were that these treatments certainly were safe and feasible to be done while patients were getting their treatment. Um, and I think that's even an important point to highlight because I know many people wonder, am I able to exercise or work out or do these kinds of activities while doing treatment? So at a minimum, they found that they were safe and feasible. Exactly how much they benefit was truthfully hard to assess, and I think that is a challenge in this field in general. They did find that people who did this additional physical activity did have some improvement in certain quality of life measures, although again, I think there remains work to be done to see fully how this can be integrated into, the, um, into our usual standard of care treatments. Uh, and again, a lot of interest amongst patients, families, and their providers in this. One more theme that I would like to discuss is the role of novel immunotherapy strategies for people with pancreas cancer. And truthfully, I think it's been hard to see that there's been benefit for immunotherapy for people with pancreas cancer, but that benefit seems limited to a very specific kind of pancreas cancer, the kind that Dr. Benson was just discussing, this mismatch repair deficient or microsatellite unstable high uh, pancreas cancer, but that's unfortunately a very small group of people with pancreas cancer. So there are many studies going on to try to determine if perhaps there are different or other novel combinations of immunotherapy treatments that can, uh, that can work together with our treatments or perhaps be treatments on their own. There was an exciting study presented here that got some enthusiasm, certainly in the lay press as well about the role of a cancer vaccine. And this was done with Dr. Vinod Balachandran here at Memorial Sloan Kettering, where he reported on use of an individualized cancer vaccine for people with resectable pancreas cancer. So these patients underwent surgery and tumor tissue from, their, um, from the surgery was used to develop a personalized mRNA cancer vaccine. This is the same technology that was used in developing the COVID-19 vaccine. And the hope is that the vaccine would stimulate an immune response to the patient's cancer and then could hopefully help, again, work together with chemotherapy and surgery to help improve outcomes. Small study, but for those patients who had, um, who did, in fact, elicit an immune response from the vaccine, there, it, it certainly seems like it has helped them more than just chemotherapy alone, although those are just early findings and, again, from a small study, so there will be more work to do to determine um, how this can be used more broadly and what the, full, what the full benefits are. So, again, certainly a lot uh, to learn here, but an exciting study and an exciting approach. And then lastly, the last abstract I wanted to discuss was another abstract that I think was um, uh, in heavily anticipated in anticipation of the ASCO meeting, which was the Avenger 500 study, which was a phase three study evaluating CPI-613, which is a drug that targets cancer cell metabolism uh, together with chemotherapy. There, this drug had had a very promising phase one study with chemotherapy, um, which led to this much larger phase three study. But unfortunately, there wasn't clear benefit seen with the addition of this medication to fulfirinox. So, this, so not clear exactly that there's a path for this drug moving forward or if there's a clear role for it, although I think important to see that and only highlights the importance of doing these kinds of larger studies to, to, be, sure, to be sure that these kinds of new and novel drugs whether, to figure out whether or not they can um, help improve outcomes for, for all of our patients. 
So again, many exciting studies, particularly in the field of immunotherapy and cancer vaccines, as well as in trying to help better determine uh, how we can use even the treatments that we already have, how we can use those better for all patients with pancreas cancer. Uh, but an exciting meeting and, and gives us, I think, certainly hope for um, future research and studies to come. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Varghese. That was really excellent and just um, just a wonderful, wonderful presentation, stellar and outstanding. And thank you so much. And I know many people were very excited to hear about these some newer treatments for pancreas cancer. And um, so thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. John Leonard. Dr. Leonard is Senior Associate Dean for Innovation and Initiatives, Executive Vice Chair, Weill Department of Medicine, Richard T. Silva, Distinguished Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Weill Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian. And Dr. Leonard will be addressing updates on the treatment of lymphoma presented at ASCO. And it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Leonard. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Messner. And it's a great pleasure to be here uh, today with this audience and uh, give you some updates in the areas of lymphoma. I'm going to give you uh, a few comments on a few different types of lymphoma where we've had interesting and important data. One is in Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh, one study there, which I think is very important, a little bit on chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which is really an indolent or slow-growing lymphoma, uh, a mention on diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is the most common lymphoma, and then finish with a couple comments on a new study in mantle cell lymphoma, which is a less common form of lymphoma. So uh, those are those, that's my uh, agenda in the next few minutes, so I'll give you a few minutes on each of these studies. Uh, the first is in Hodgkin lymphoma, which is a type of lymphoma that is largely curable with chemotherapy. And over many years, uh, the most common regimen of chemotherapy that was used was called ABVD, adriamycin, bleomycin, vinblastine, and decarbazine. Each letter stands for uh, a different drug. And for patients with what we call advanced stage disease, where the disease is in multiple areas, uh, typically patients received uh, uh, six months of chemotherapy as an outpatient, basically 12 treatments over those six months. Occasionally there were variations on that. So several years ago, a drug called Brentuximab Vidotin, which is in the family of what you heard of earlier called antibody drug conjugates, an antibody or an immune protein, this one targeting CD30, which is a protein on the surface of the bad guys in Hodgkin lymphoma called Reed-Sternberg cells, attached to a chemotherapy drug. So essentially, Brentuximab Vidotin is an immune protein that acts like a truck to deliver the chemotherapy more specifically to the tumor cells. So this drug has been approved for several years, and it's been swapped into the ABVD regimen where the B, bleomycin, is removed and the newer drug called Brentuximab Vidotin or BV is swapped in. The initials make it a little more complicated. And so the study that was reported and updated at ASCO and actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine is actually a study that we've heard about before. We've known that 
by swapping in the newer drug, brentuximabidotin, we improve the control of the disease or the time of the disease relapsing, or in fact, we improve the number of people who have relapses by about 7%. Now, this is a type of lymphoma where most patients are cured, which is good news, but we actually cure more patients when we swap in the newer drug. And in fact, the, the newer data shows that the overall survival or the number of patients that are living uh, uh, years later is improved through the use of this brentuximabidotin newer drug. And so this is really exciting data because we essentially prevent relapses and also uh, help people to live longer. Uh, and uh, obviously that, those are important uh, parameters that we follow. So swapping in brentuximabidotin for ABVD chemotherapy or in ABVD chemotherapy uh, improves outcomes for patients. Now there are additional side effects including low blood count uh, and neuropathy or numbness and tingling of the fingers, so it's not a free ride, so to speak, uh, but these are typically manageable for most patients and, and with appropriate care can be dealt with. So uh, important for Hodgkin lymphoma patients to know the latest therapy. Next, I want to move briefly to chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which is the most common leukemia. It's really closer to a lymphoma. This uh, therapy, uh, this uh, type of disease, is also really no longer treated with chemotherapy for the vast majority of patients. We commonly treat patients now with either a combination of a drug called obinotuzumab, an antibody against something called CD20, and a drug called venetoclax, which is a pill that inhibits uh, something called BCL2, which helps keep the cells alive. Or we use a drug in the category of Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. There's a drug called abrutinib and some newer ones called acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib. And so the trade-offs of these are that uh, there are different options. One involves an IV infusion. Another one uh, is with the pills called uh, Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors, commonly is an indefinite therapy, at least as of today, where patients stay on the pills long-term which is not horrible for most patients, but uh, is accompanied by some, some nagging side effects in some cases. And so what we saw at ASCO was some data with a combination of the abrutinib, uh, Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and venetoclax, the, the one of the BCL2 inhibitor, in a fixed duration or a defined period of time therapy. So the upside of this approach potentially is that the patients don't need to stay on the, the treatment indefinitely or for uh, many years or for the rest of their life potentially, but for a defined period of time, perhaps a year or two years. And they, it's all by mouth, all pills. And so the early data with this combination were quite, are quite good. They're encouraging. And I think the advantage or potential advantage for patients is that this could be an oral or pill form of therapy but administered for a defined period of time, not something that a patient needs to stay on long term. So more comparative studies are in progress, uh, but certainly uh, encouraging results there. And I think this is a moving target for CLL or chronic lymphocytic leukemia therapy. Next, there were some other studies, which I won't go into the details on, but just more and more data on the category of therapies called CAR T cells. These are CAR T's or C-A-R T cells. These are immune cells or T cells from the patient himself or herself 
that are removed from the patient, from the patient, re-engineered to better fight lymphoma cells, and then given back to the, the patient, typically after some light chemotherapy. And these T cells, uh, once infused into the patient, go on and go after the lymphoma cells. This is a form of therapy that can be, in some cases, very effective where other therapies are not working. There are some side effects that typically requires hospitalization, although not always. There can be some immune system-related side effects that are, are not uh, trivial, but these CAR T cells are now being used in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, and are in some settings either replacing chemotherapy or can be used after chemotherapy. And so these are important therapies that for patients with these diseases, it's certainly worth asking your doctor about uh, and for some cases may be an appropriate option to consider. And then finally, uh, I wanted to highlight uh, some new data that were presented in mantle cell lymphoma. And mantle cell lymphoma is a form of lymphoma that is treated typically with chemoimmunotherapy, combinations of chemotherapy and a drug called rituximab, an antibody therapy. The, probably the most common treatment for uh, mantle cell lymphoma is a, a regimen called bendamustine, a chemotherapy drug with rituximab, other, although there are a wide range of other options that are occasionally used for patients. As a second therapy, patients often, if the disease comes back, they are often treated with a, a pill, again, I referenced earlier, uh, a brutinib or one of the other Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor pills. And so this study asked the question, it's called the SHINE study, and it asked the question, do patients do better if they receive the Bruton's tyrosine kinase as part inhibitor or a brutinib as part of their initial therapy combined with the bendamustine rituximab, or are they better off or comparably served by waiting and leaving it out as part of the initial treatment, but using it later as a second or third treatment uh, down the line? And so this study showed that basically by adding the abrutinib as part of the initial therapy, patients stayed in remission longer. However, the, uh, the, there were some side effects and some infections and other side effects that in some ways uh, reduced the effectiveness of the therapy when given in combination. And in fact, the overall survival, the percentage of people living later was quite similar. And again, the outcomes are quite good with this uh, bendamustine rituximab-based therapy for patients. Over a number of years, patients can do quite well. And so the takeaway from this is that while the disease could stay in remission longer, it's perfectly reasonable because the survival as far as how long people live was the same by using the abrutinib later as a second treatment. And in fact, some of the side effects might have been reduced by waiting and using the abrutinib or a similar Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor, presumably later in the course of therapy. And so this gives patients a number of different options. There are pros and cons of these different approaches. And I think in some ways um, it, that is a, a good finding for patients in that there are different options. Uh, and patients can talk to their doctors and their care team and decide what is the right uh, or best option that they have among several for their individual situation. 
So I'll leave you and leave the lymphoma situation just by, by saying that there are uh, certainly a number of new therapies out there that can work when other treatments don't work, that can be uh, options for the initial therapy and in some cases can improve outcomes, and in others provide additional options for, permit, for patients to consider with their doctor. And I'll just highlight, as all the other speakers have, the importance of clinical trials and, cl and participation in clinical trials by patients because this offers the opportunity to advance knowledge in the field, develop new treatments that can work, and provide new options for patients for many different scenarios. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Leonard. That was really outstanding, uh, just an amazing presentation. And, and also very inspirational in terms of all the information you provided and, of course, the call-out to participation in clinical trials um, for, um, you know, for uh, lymphoma, for people living with lymphoma and for all cancers as well. So thank you so much. Uh, just a wonderful presentation. Thank you. Very stellar. Thank you. And our next uh, speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Um, and Dr. Morrow is leader of myeloproliferative neoplasms program, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor of Weill Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be presenting updates on the treatment of leukemia presented at ASCO. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Well, thank, thank you, Dr. Mester, and thanks everyone for joining. I, uh, I hope you're um, still uh, engaged here. We have so much information, and it's quite a, a, uh, a formidable um, task to follow my, my colleagues in their, in their presentations. But um, so the ASCO meeting is a little bit more of a, um, uh, a choice for us to update and to try to provide important information if we have it for leukemia, whereas blood cancers, specifically the leukemias, we, we tend to see a little bit more information at the ASH meeting. But clearly, whenever we have new information, we like to share it. So in the next few minutes, I'll update you a little bit on AML um, from meetings that were either ASCO or very close to ASCO, um, a bit on ALL. And, and lastly on CML. So um, starting with AML, there, there's been a tremendous paradigm shift if you hadn't um, known it in that uh, acute myeloid leukemia was traditionally a form of leukemia treated with um, infusional chemotherapy that was hospital-based, sometimes with um, other approaches taken um, and generally where allogeneic stem cell transplant or bone marrow transplant was viewed as a, um, an option for many patients. Um, uh, where necessary. Um, over the last few years, we've seen a real explosion in, in novel treatments, and we really have opened up many opportunities, particularly for patients who may not be able to manage some of the side effects that can come with the chemotherapy that's hospital-based that can bring on side effects and lower blood counts and some complications faster. So um, I want to open up the uh, people's minds to the idea that Acute myeloid leukemia is often a disease that can be treated better, particularly in um, us as we age, because it is a, a disease that's considered bimodal. We see it, unfortunately, in kids, uh, where the remission rates have, have risen dramatically, especially in ALL. Um, also, um, in AML, we've done good work. But then, unfortunately, it is a disease with age. Um, I'll also highlight the fact that we've... Um, and not something that necessarily we saw at ASCO, but just a general update in the field, is that our understanding of how our blood evolves with age has really advanced. And an entire field of something called clonal hematopoiesis, or essentially checking for damage in our blood, um, perhaps after other chemotherapy, perhaps just due to time and, and age, um, we've recognized that that can happen. 
and we may have the ability to um, to see blood cancers as they evolve at a much earlier point, potentially to intervene. And um, so um, don't uh, be open to the idea that um, more complicated testing on the blood can really sometimes reveal uh, genetic changes or molecular changes, which could be um, important and, and could uh, potentially be a, a, a target for treatment in the future. And, and I'm getting at the fact that we may be able to identify leukemia before it really strikes or essentially identify its precursors and, and at least manage the information or potentially treat. But in AML, when AML has occurred, um, not at ASCO, but at a related meeting called EHA, the European Society for Hematology, European, sorry, European, European Hematology Association, we saw an important study that has changed the uh, use of our standard chemotherapy for people that are um, able to take standard chemotherapy. That is still often the best treatment, a, a regimen called 7 plus 3. And the Quantum First study was presented at EHA. And that was adding a new targeted drug called Quizartinib, which is um, a next-generation FLT3 inhibitor. Many people with AML have a defect in the AML cells, which causes them to divide even faster, leads to higher blood cell counts, and can lead to greater risk of relapse. A few years back, we saw an important trial called the RATIFY trial, where people taking standard chemotherapy and adding an oral medication that was pretty uh, minimal side effect called Midastorin were able to improve the overall survival for leukemia, which was a landmark, and that became the new standard. We now have medicines that are like Midastorin, and Quisartin is one of them, and this, this study showed that we now can double the overall survival in patients with AML, and also we can extend that treatment to people that are uh, of older age. The original studies using Midastorin were for, for people up to 60 years of age, and the Quantum First trial looked at people up to 75. Not everybody up to 75 years of age may get treatment with the standard 7 plus 3 regimen, but this was great data. Um, Following that thread in AML, we did see um, at ASCO some more um, data on a, an interesting medication called magrolimab. I think my colleagues have highlighted a lot of efforts in the immune pathways of cancer, either allowing our immune system to work better, engineering cells to fight cancer, uh, blocking things that ch keep our immune system in check. And an antibody drug called magrolimab has been developed and is being studied in both myelodysplasia, which is pre-leukemia, if you will, and AML. And there are a few studies um, giving us some encouraging data. Um, what that antibody does is it blocks a surface marker on, on cancer cells, and it essentially al allows our immune system to not get fatigued or exhausted by trying to um, down, be, be down-regulated and allows them to uh, essentially the the charming phrase we use is it, it sends an eat me signal to the uh, to the uh, our immune system. So, and that's what we want our immune system to do is to kind of Pac-Man style is to clear uh, damaged cells, cancer cells out of our system. So, in combination with a drug called azacitidine, um, in both myelodysplasia and a higher risk form of AML, which has a, a damage to a cancer suppressor gene called TP53, megrolimab is really um, improving response rates with a third of patients responding. Um, with complete remissions in myelodysplasia who haven't had any treatment, and a 50% um, remission rate in people with high-risk AML. And that's a real, uh, that, that's encouraging data. So these newer medications are really offering us treatment options that can improve our success with our standard medications. Let me touch a little bit on ALL, where we saw some reports about better use of, uh, again, newer drugs, particularly um, a bispecific antibody called blenitumumab. Um, and an, an antibody toxin conjugate called inotuzumab. 
essentially ALL can be very successfully treated even if it doesn't have the Philadelphia chromosome um, in where we are able to use targeted drugs and, and boost success rates. In those people with ALL without the Philadelphia chromosome, which is the, the majority of cases, a regimen called Hyper-CVAD, which is an alternating chemotherapy regimen designed to essentially outsmart the cancer by using uh, mixtures of medications in alternating cycles to kind of keep the cancer always on the run, um, has been studied in combination with these newer antibody drugs, one which engages the immune system um, and the cancer cell, um, and one which just delivers um, a toxin right to the cancer cell through a specific target. And we really have shown that we can boost remission rates by giving the antibody drug um, blenitumumab with hyper-CVAD. Um, and, and I think this shows us um, some, some progress in ALL. Granted, there's been a tremendous progress in ALL with CAR T-cell therapy and other therapies that I, I mentioned as they've been developed. So we're really just sort of fine-tuning things, if you will. The last disease I'll talk about is my favorite, which is chronic myeloid leukemia. Um, and at ASCO, there was an update of an important study comparing um, yet another oral targeted drug called Asiminib, um, which was FDA approved recently in comparison to what we might use after someone had tried two medications or more in CML. So CML is a chronic leukemia where oral targeted drugs against the cancer gene called BCR-ABL uh, are often highly effective, but they're not perfect. Some people have side effects, some people don't gain remission or they lose remission or both. And that may happen more than once. Some people try one medicine or a second, and it's often a, a mixture, again, of combination of side effects and, and response issues. And Asiminib was a new type of BCR-ABL inhibitor, which was different than all five of the other FDA-approved drugs before it by targeting something different on the BCR-ABL uh, gene that's active and it's driving the cancer. Uh, what's good about that is it may allow us to combine that with the five medicines we have. And in this case, in the, in the um, um, ASSEMBLE trial, which was a comparison of Asiminib versus Basudinib, now at 96 weeks of follow-up, we can see that the response is clearly better with Asiminib, that the tolerability of the drug continues to look very good, and we think we may have developed a new standard of care for patients who have had more, uh, several medications and haven't gained remission. And, um, not surprisingly, Asiminib is now being brought further up in the lines of therapy, and we're seeing, we have trials running, which we don't have data yet, but I, I encourage if you do have CML and, and, and there's treatment um, response questions, or if you're newly diagnosed even, we now have trials opening where you can, you, you can gain access to a newer medication, which may offer a very low side effect profile and even, do, even better than the medications we have available. So to summarize, we have promise in AML with... Um, low-risk low targeted drugs added to standard chemotherapy, antibody drugs added to, low, to, to lower-risk treatments, boosting response rates in, 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 in either MDS or higher-risk AML. We have further progress in antibody drugs in ALL, and in CML, we have continued confidence that this drug, Asiminib, really may change our, our treatment um, algorithms and now is in study for frontline use. So acute leukemias can be treated now um, much safer. The medications are generally shifting towards those of lower risk and higher yield. And the beauty of targeted therapy is that we continue to see greater and greater breadth and depth of treatment options. So even in a space like CML where we have five targeted drugs, we now have a sixth targeted drug, which still is probably a huge advance and, 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 a, and a great addition in the field. So I'll leave leukemia at that and thank you for your attention.
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Moore. That was an exceptional presentation, just wonderful and just very, um, very helpful to our participants and lots of great information. And um, thank you for this kind of also very inspiring and, and very, um, very informative information. Thank you. Thank you so much, as always. Um, and our next speaker um, is Dr. Terry Day. And Dr. Day is Director, Head and Neck Oncology, Sarah Cannon National Group, Head and Neck Specialist, Sarah Cannon. And Dr. Day will be addressing updates on the treatment of oral and head and neck cancer presented at ASCO. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Day. Thank you, Dr. Mesmer. It's a pleasure to be a part of this great teleconference. And thankfully, the prior presenters have presented a lot of the terminology that will be helpful in the head and neck cancer discussion. So today I'll provide our patients and caregivers as well as oncology clinicians a brief overview of some of the important findings that were presented at ASCO in June. I'd like to acknowledge my co-authors, Dr. Cesar Perez-Batista from Florida Cancer Specialists and Sarah Cannon Research Group and Priya Sivaraja, who's a fellow with our team in South Carolina. As a head and neck cancer surgeon, I appreciate their expertise in the non surgical emerging research and therapies. And I'm also really excited. Uh, the evolution of research in head and neck cancer with what we're going to present today uh, includes novel systemic therapies and combinations that are really improving and extending lives with fewer side effects in our patients that we see every day in the clinic. So for those who are not clinicians or researchers, but possibly cancer patients or caregivers of head and neck cancer patients or survivor, uh, I'm going to give a brief summary that will help guide our conversation. Uh, but first, I'm going to summarize what I'm going to talk about because there were some common themes like some of the uh, previous presenters described that were in some of the hundreds of abstracts related to head and neck cancer. The first one was really um, a focus on the, both the curative options for head and neck cancer but also, you know, in many of our patients, equally important is the quality of life and the strategies to reduce the dose of treatment or extent of treatment. That might include chemotherapy or radiation, which improves outcomes and reduces side effects. And so a lot of the terminology you'll see in some of the abstracts now for head and neck cancer is de-intensification of treatment. So reducing the intensity of the um, treatment so that the, the side effects are fewer. Secondly, there are many studies and clinical trials that are addressing the role of immunotherapy, targeted therapies, checkpoint inhibitor therapies, and chemotherapy. And these can be used as monotherapy, one treatment alone or in combination with each other or with other treatments like radiation. So, as described in some of the other cancers, these might be used first as an induction or neoadjuvant approach prior to other treatments, or as a definitive uh, curative type approach as the final treatment for the cancer. Uh, they also might also be used in a, uh, as a term called adjuvant treatment, uh, which is after a, a prior treatment such as surgery. So, you know, the checkpoint inhibitors have already been shown to improve outcomes survival and reduced toxicity compared to standard chemotherapies in many head and neck cancers. Uh, these agents uh, stimulate a, really a patient's own, own immune system or T cells, which can activate their own immune system to reduce and limit cancer cell growth. 
lastly, there's many emerging targets for head and neck, and head and neck, uh, you know, sometimes includes salivary or thyroid or some cutaneous. Uh, but really, our goal is more personalized approaches that would allow us to really target an individual's own cancer in their body. Another term that that uh, is emerging, you'll see in some of the abstracts, is metronomic chemotherapy, which is really uh, simplified to treatment in which low doses of anti-cancer drugs are given on a more continuous type of treatment or regular schedule over a longer period of time. So before we get to individual abstracts, I think it's important that we define what we're talking about in head and neck. And head and neck generally re refers to the mucosal lining of the upper aerodigestive tract. So it's not just one organ or one cancer. There are many different sites, uh, many different histologies, and many different causes of head and neck cancers. Uh, historically, we always thought it was from tobacco and alcohol. Now we know there's viral and other causes. Um, so once we break it down, we can break it down into simplified versions of the mouth or the throat or the voice box. And these are referred to as oral cavity, pharynx, and larynx. And if we go even deeper, the pharynx can be broken down into the nasopharynx, the oropharynx, and the hypopharynx. And so these are different parts of the pharynx. So um, really, the, the key point here is since 2018, our staging system has changed. And the first time in history, we now have a separate staging system for the viral-mediated cancers of the head and neck. And these are the oropharyngeal cancers, which we all know now are associated with human papillomavirus, uh, similar to cervical cancers. And so now cancers of the oropharynx, the base of tongue and tonsil, are referred to as HPV positive or HPV negative. And if you're a patient or caregiver and you want to know if your cancer was an oropharyngeal cancer and was related to a virus, make sure you ask your doctor if they had checked it for the P16, which is a surrogate marker for HPV and oropharyngeal cancers. Uh, lastly, oral cancer also um, received a, a change in the staging system. And so for the first time in history, depth of invasion of oral cancers is important in the staging system. So in head and neck cancer, stage one and two are typically single modality treatment, radiation, or surgery. Stage three and four are usually combined modality treatment. And this is a simplified description, but typically it's chemo with radiation or surgery followed by radiation. And so when we talk in today and about the abstracts that I'm presenting, uh, we might use the terms local regionally advanced head and neck cancer. And what that means is that's typically a stage three or four cancer. Oftentimes, it's grown into adjacent structures or into the lymph nodes. The term recurrent cancer means a cancer that had previously been treated and had returned. And then finally, metastatic cancer is a cancer that is spread through the bloodstream and typically outside of the head and neck. And so now I'm going to go into some details about some of the uh, presentations, um, and I'll, I'll break these down into some categories. Uh, the first, it was very interesting in that the nasopharynx, a cancer that's been associated with the Epstein-Barr virus, had some very interesting presentations. Uh, following that, we'll talk about, like we described, the local regionally advanced and metastatic head and neck cancer uh, trials that were presented. 
And we'll uh, cover a few trials with oropharynx or the HPV-mediated cancers. And um, if, if time permits, we'll, we'll go into some details with the salivary gland malignancies uh, like the parotid gland cancers and thyroid cancers. So in nasopharynx, uh, to summarize um, the abstracts presented, um, there are in improvements in treatment for nasopharyngeal cancer. This is much more common in Asia than, than in the United States. And two large studies out of China were presented. The first uh, by Ma et al. Uh, looked at over 300 patients with intermediate risk, so stage two or three nasopharyngeal cancers. And this compared what our standard was, chemotherapy with radiation, to only treating with radiation. And uh, it was interesting, the chemotherapy and radiation arm had higher side effects from the treatment, uh, but overall, the radiation alone group had comparable cancer treatment response, survival, and local regional control. So the authors concluded that radiation alone may be adequate in these stage two and three nasopharyngeal cancers. In another large study out of China by Sun et al., uh, they studied the use of targeted therapy, which you heard about earlier, with, with chemo radiation using an anti-epidermal growth factor receptor. And uh, this was in locally advanced nasopharyngeal cancer. So uh, these were larger tumors that were growing into adjacent structure. And it showed that the targeted therapy plus chemo radiation showed an improved response and survival compared to placebo with chemo radiation and the adverse events were similar among the two groups. So really, this is some more evidence that some nasopharyngeal cancers may be treated with single modality treatment. Now I'll go into one of the more common scenarios are cancers that are advanced stage three or four um, or are spreading or have spread throughout the body. And there were some very interesting studies uh, presented in this category. Um, uh, the first I'll present was a phase three study out of India by Sharma et al. that compared weekly cisplatin chemotherapy to every three weeks chemotherapy for local regionally advanced head and neck cancer. And this was uh, in combination with radiation. So it was radiation uh, plus either weekly or every three weeks cisplatin. And this was a trial that was a non-inferiority trial. So basically what it showed was that the weekly cisplatin with radiation provided less interruptions of treatment, hospitalizations, and side effects, and may be considered as one of the standard treatments. Uh, next would be um, a use of a uh, pembrolizumab and a targeted therapy with a checkpoint inhibitor followed uh, with an oral by mouth multikinase inhibitor in recurrent metastatic cancer. And this showed an overall response rate of uh, over 40%. And the authors concluded that this was uh, the basis for future studies looking at these combinations in these advanced cancers. Uh, going to oropharynx now, uh, in oropharyngeal cancer, circulating tumor DNA, so now a blood test for oropharyngeal HPV-associated cancer is available. And this study looked at the time points, three time points before treatment, during treatment, and following treatment in a previous NRG head and neck 002 study that combined uh, 
IMRT with cisplatin versus IMRT alone. And it was interesting that 10% of the HPV or P16 positives were undetectable on the circulating tumor DNA prior to treatment, and 6.6% had DNA different from HPV 16 with a negative predictive value of over 90% in all of these. Also from ECOG 3311, an update by Mara et al. Uh, showed that uh, smoking and the intermediate risk factors did not have any influence on the outcome in this population, and the transoral robotic surgery was, uh, was um, acceptable with reduced postoperative radiation improving outcomes. Finally, I'd just like to present, uh, I was excited to see that there were several quality of life presentations and that these uh, quality of life presentations um, looked at swallowing outcomes and uh, one of them showed an improved outcome in mucositis, which is uh, fabulous using a, a new uh, medication that reduced the incidence and duration of oral mucositis in a multi-institutional setting by Anderson et al. Another one looked at uh, reducing radiation treatment by Nutting et al. Uh, with comparable quality of life and two-year results in the United Kingdom. And so um, with that, I'm going to wrap up. Uh, I think in summary, there are many advances in head and neck cancer treatments showing longer progression-free survival, better quality of life, and reduced side effects. And the future is so exciting for more targeted therapies and personalized medicine in head and neck cancer. So thank you, Dr. Mesner, and all of the uh, participants and presenters, and uh, I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Day. That was really outstanding, just a stellar presentation and just wonderful information um, and very inspiring information on the treatment of oral and head and neck cancer. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels. And Dr. Daniels is Professor of Medicine, UC San Diego Morris Cancer Center. And Dr. Daniels will be addressing updates on the treatment of melanoma presented at ASCO. And Dr. Um, Daniels has also been gracious enough to actually provide a wrap-up of part two of highlights of ASCO 2022. It is my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner and um, Cancer Care for putting this on and all the uh, audience attendees um, for trying to absorb the really deep level of understanding for cancer changes and updates um, this last year. I'll uh, briefly talk about melanoma and then I'll, I'll give a summary. For melanoma, um, some of the similar themes that were presented for the other cancers were touched upon. Um, you heard about neoadjuvant and adjuvant. These are therapies designed to lower the risk for cancer recurrence, um, either given before or after therapy. And then therapies in more advanced disease, um, really with the goal of improving outcomes if not um, actually curing people with advanced disease. So a decade ago, um, it was difficult to really even talk about that for advanced uh, melanomas. Um, but similar to the other tumor types where we've gotten a better understanding of what's making the cancer grow, uh, the supporting cells that make up a tumor, uh, which are not all cancer cells, but uh, are cells that are in cahoots with the tumor, uh, with the cancer cells to make these masses that um, that are so dangerous. And so in the adjuvant setting, um, we have had 
both targeted therapies. Those are oral medications that go after growth pathways in melanoma, and the and the most active one and the one we have target for is for the BRAF gene uh, product. And so that medication, and there's several on the market, um, has been shown to decrease the risk of of high-risk melanoma from coming back. In addition, the application of immune therapies, such as pembrolizumab and nivolumab, which have been talked about already, also have been shown to uh, decrease uh, the risk of melanoma coming back. Well, what do we call high risk? Uh, historically, that's been patients with lymph node positive disease at the time of surgery. Um, what was new this last year has been the publication of a study looking at patients that are at high risk who are not um, having lymph node positive disease. So these are stage two patients, specifically stage 2B and 2C in melanoma. And the study looked at doing standard of care, um, and this was presented by Dr. Georgina Long at ASCO. Standard of care has been close observation because we know the risk is high for tumor coming back, but up until the study, we hadn't found anything to um, improve the outcomes for this group. What uh, Dr. Long presented was updates to a study using pembrolizumab uh, for one year in stage 2 B and C patients uh, that had gone through surgery for melanoma but had no, no sign of the disease. And um, using pembrolizumab compared to a placebo, uh, the risk of both the tumor coming back um, in any spot as well as the tumor coming back uh, distantly, and that's the data she presented, was significantly decreased in uh, stage 2 B and 2 C patients. Uh, she presented data about the patterns of recurrence um, as well as the toxicities. Um, the toxicities for uh, these immune checkpoints are pretty broad as uh, we're dealing with the immune system and trying to tweak it to kill the cancer. And so all the applications in adjuvant therapy need to be a, a good discussion with your treating physician about the pros and cons of um, decreasing the risk of it coming back, but also accepting the idea that uh, there are some toxicities, some of which are, are lifelong toxicities that can happen with these agents. Moving on to advanced disease, um, again, over the last 10 years, we've had such a sea change in outcomes for melanoma patients. And this year was really kind of refining how we use uh, these therapies. That was one theme, as well as um, the introduction of a new uh, immune checkpoint. On the refining part, we've had targeted therapies and immune therapies, as I've mentioned, but we've um, had this quandary of which um, sequence, which patients should be given which drugs first. And so Dr. Atkins updated his DreamSeq uh, trial in frontline patients. Frontline means um, metastatic disease, but no treatment. And these patients were randomized between a targeted BRAF inhibitor or double uh, immune checkpoint therapy, in this case, ipilimumab and nivolumab. And then uh, overall survival uh, was measured in these patients. At the time of first progression, um, each um, group of patients were offered the idea of switching over to the alternative therapy. So this really gets at the idea of which treatment is better first, if that even matters. And the answer was clear. Um, 
that immune therapy um, in appropriate patients, and that's pretty much most patients, but not all, um, should be first line uh, with targeted therapy being reserved uh, for later lines of therapy. Again, in most patients, and this would be a discussion with you and your oncologist as to, as to the application of this data. But it really helped clarify um, uh, this uh, issue in uh, melanoma care. The other uh, major issue or uh, major finding, I think, in um, melanoma this year, um, updated um, again at ASCO, um, published earlier by Dr. Taube in the New England Journal, is the medication relatlimab um, combined with nivolumab. Um, these are all mouthful kind of words. But uh, suffice it to say that um, relatlimab is another immune checkpoint uh, that's combined with this PD-1 inhibitor, in this case, nivolumab. And in patients, again, randomized and compared in the frontline setting, the addition of this um, second immune checkpoint was superior in um, some measures for uh, outcomes for patients. Um, so adding another tool um, to the use in uh, melanoma patients. I will mention that um, uh, melanoma is, um, we think about it as a cutaneous disease, but uh, there are other sites uh, where melanoma occurs, such as the eyes, so ocular melanoma, as well as in the, in the uh, GI tract, uh, mucosal melanomas. I'll mention that dibentafusp, which is a, another um, immune-modulating mo molecule, was approved in ocular melanomas. So these are rare tumors that happen in the eye that um, some of them um, recur, and when they do, uh, they're very, very difficult to treat. Dibentafusp is the first agent um, approved in ocular melanoma for improved outcomes uh, for patients who have to be a specific immune type. And these, this is something, again, to talk about with your physician, but HLA-A2 is a requirement um, in your immune system, and that that occurs in about 40% of the patients. So this agent is not for everybody, but um, is, is really a new hope uh, for some who have um, metastatic uh, ocular melanoma. So a lot more exciting stuff, and I know I'm, I'm, uh, I'm brushing over a lot of things such as cell therapy and um, different immune things, but I want to go back to try to wrap up for everybody on you know, what we've been talking about from Dr. Chris in lung cancer, um, starting that you know equitable cancer care by innovation. And I think it's pretty clear that um, science has been driving uh, medical oncology for the last couple decades. Uh, when I first um, got into uh, oncology, the care in lung cancer was limited to what we called a chemotherapy doublet. This were two chemotherapies. Um, that were given to advanced patients. The field hadn't changed for 20 to 40 years prior to when I joined. Outcomes really hadn't budged significantly during that time. And now, uh, just in the last 10 to 15 years, we've gotten such a better understanding of what's driving the growth of the tumor as well as all that supporting structure to better um, both target what we have, chemotherapies, but add to it or even replace with uh, immune therapies and targeted therapies. So the outcomes for lung cancer patients um, have really advanced um, over the last uh, five years uh, because of this deeper understanding that, as Dr. Benson said, in colorectal cancer, um, understanding that some 
colorectal cancers and GI cancers have these mismatch repair defects, these genes that open up the idea of the immune system now um, helping uh, at least a, a measurable fraction of patients with um, significant outcomes, but applying um, more technologies such as circulating DNA to help target uh, better and risk stratify patients better so that we can work our way down to uh, say, stage two colon cancer with uh, circulating DNA and apply preventative uh, measures to avoid the cancer coming back. And even Dr. Vargnes um, in pancreatic cancer noting that um, such a difficult cancer to crack, but now we have PARP inhibitors that are linked to certain um, DNA repair genes, as well as using response to therapy to predict um, response to other therapies. And so really starting to see some movement in pancreatic cancer as we get this better understanding. Um, lymphoma and leukemias, um, same thing, uh, same theme going on. Um, you saw that in Hodgkin's disease that um, knowing that CD30 is on those uh, Reed-Sternberg cells that uh, were mentioned, and then creating an um, antibody uh, chemotherapy toxin to go in there, and this is such a, a huge advancement for, yes, a curable cancer in a lot, of, a lot of cases, but trying to cure more people as well as lower the long-term toxicities. Um, and that was across the board in, in his presentations on lymphoma, as well as Dr. Morrow with uh, leukemia, finding that, again, for years in AML, we were giving combination chemotherapy and getting some good outcomes, but now that we understand that there are these molecular drivers, we can go after those specifically, like the FLT3 um, inhibitors that he, he briefly discussed uh, for AML. And lastly, with Dr. Day, um, understanding that, yeah, not all head and neck cancers come from tobacco and alcohol, and the epidemiology is changing, and we know that um, that's changing because of HPV-driven uh, uh, cancers EBV-driven cancers and the nasopharynx. And so working with these same tools that have been talked about as well as these molecular discoveries to decrease the toxicities from pretty tough treatments in head and neck cancers, but work down to now keeping the higher response rates um, but lowering the toxicities. So hopefully you heard through here kind of those themes of how, how we're applying science as called out. Clinical trials are vital. Uh, to moving the field forward, so I encourage um, anybody, um, everybody, uh, to ask physicians um, about clinical trial opportunities and how they apply to your care, and uh, hopefully with that we can uh, continue this advancement and improve outcomes for patients. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was really a phenomenal presentation, both on um, melanoma and also on just the wrap-up of part two highlights of ASCO. You've really um, captured really the essence of today's program and, and also the call out again to clinical trials. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I just want to thank all of our speakers. They've been phenomenal. And I just want to say a few words um, before we wrap up totally about the services that you can access from Cancer Care. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization and we provide services to people, free programs and service people um, all over the United States, and although, um, and if you, uh, some of our participants today are from global countries, from international countries, you can visit our website, post your question, and our staff will try to help you link up to resources in your region of the world, um, so to some extent. 
Um, so what are the free programs and services that Cancer Care offers in the United States? Um, so people often call our HOPE line, 800-813-4673, and they speak to one of our oncology social workers. They will answer the phone. And we have about 45 of them. So when you call, there's no wait time. You'll get connected to somebody right away. And many people just start with the issue that they have. And then the social worker will review all the services we offer. And those services include both practical and financial assistance um, and co-payment assistance. And those uh, financial assistance programs and co-pay assistance programs are for people in the United States. Um, and those are quite generous programs. And we also offer um, a case management, um, help you to finding the resources if we don't have them in your location um, where you are. Um, and also, and we do offer online support groups, and we do offer support, just a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers. Again, we serve all ages. Um, so from, um, you know, from the parents who call us about, or guardians who call us about their children with cancer, as well as um, older adults, um, middle-aged adults, young adults. We, and we have online support groups for caregivers of all different ages and all different relationships as caregivers and also for people living with, um, with different types of cancers as well. We do offer these workshops about 80 the past year. We offer about 80 of these workshops um, and we do offer a number of publications as well. So with that being said, I would not want anyone to leave today's program feeling you're alone. I want you to now know that you're part of a community of support. We're here to help you. And if we don't have the resource you need, I assure you we will connect you to an organization that does have those resources. So that, um, that is really important. We don't want you to feel like there isn't something for you. Um, there's always a resource for you. And um, you will be getting a survey monkey. Um, of uh, today's program, its evaluation, but you'll also be receiving a, um, in that evaluation, there also will be resources that will provide for you in addition to cancer care where you can access resources. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.